Hey, it's Mark. During COVID, many of us became keen observers of the healthcare system, especially in terms of how the pandemic was straining capacity and stretching doctors' ability to deliver good medical care to the limit. One of the most closely watched dynamics was the delay in elective surgeries as people put off procedures until it was safe to visit the hospital. That had a direct impact on medtech companies whose medical and surgical products are used in all types of procedures. As more patients saw their doctors in person again and scheduled elective procedures that had been delayed by the pandemic, 2022 saw a partial return to form. The question now for medtech is, has the surgical backlog pushed volume as high as expected? And how has that impacted demand for their products? I'll speak with Bob White, EVP of the Medical Surgical Portfolio at device giant Medtronic, to get his take. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll explain a recent move by the Department of Veterans Affairs to reduce suicides by making emergency care free for veterans who are in suicidal crisis. We'll also hear from Jack O'Brien to find out what's brewing on the social media front as it pertains to healthcare. Jack, what's on tap for this week? Hi there, Mark. This week's healthcare-related social media trend gives anti-vaxxers a taste of their own medicine with humor. I'll dive into the countless videos online of people mocking the alleged detrimental medical conditions and injuries caused by receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So as I alluded to in my intro, in order to understand the forecast for medtech companies, one needs to be a student of what's happening in hospitals and at some of the bigger companies. Medtronic is a massive one, but its medical surgical component accounts for about a third of the company's revenues, including everything from open laparoscopic devices used in minimally invasive surgery to robotic surgery and patient monitoring, respiratory interventions like ventilators, uh, as well as a gastrointestinal business, and finally renal care. So it covers a wide breadth indeed, and as such, it's a pretty good barometer. Overall, demand for medtech products improved in 2022, as more patients saw their doctors in person again and scheduled elective procedures that had been delayed by the pandemic. I asked Bob White, EVP of Medtronic's Medical Surgical Unit, how his business fared in 2022 and some of the other factors impacting the delay. Yeah, the, the business fared pretty well. You know, I would say uh, you're right that procedures did start to come back. We still saw a lag in truly elective procedures. So, you know, that shows up most in, you know, our GI business, which is, you know, diagnostic. So think, you know, colonoscopy, you know, in, in those businesses that people put off those diagnostic tests and some elective surgical procedures. But, you know, Mark, it's interesting Um I think it was a little bit of people putting it off, but I also think the staffing shortage had a real impact on procedures this past year is, for example, uh, hospitals just ran fewer operating rooms due to staffing shortages than they would have had. So, you know, we're optimistic. We think the, the business come back, but clearly you look at that elective versus, you know, urgent procedures, elective being a little bit softer than pre-COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did that dynamic, uh, the backlog, in elective procedures and, and the, versus the resumption of elective surgery and procedures across medical specialties. that um, Has that kind of benefited your business? Has that kind of been a little bit of a drag or kind of, would you say it's, um, it's flat in terms of its yeah, impact? You know, our business has, uh, you know, products that are used in both. So, you know, when, 
you know, when surgical procedures volumes are up overall, our business does better because, of course, they're used during the procedures um, and that our products are used, whether you're, it's elective or not. So but certainly some of our products are, you know, more designed towards elective procedures. And when that happens, you know, the business suffers a little bit for sure. 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 Okay. You kind of have to be a student of what's happening uh, in, on the hospital side in order to kind of forecast and put this stuff in perspective. Um, so elective surgery volumes uh, can, can continue to lag uh, pre-COVID-19 levels. Are you concerned, Bob, about the about how robust and sustainable the demand may be? Actually, no, I'm not concerned. I do believe elective procedures will come back. I mean, people need you know, procedures. They get them done. You can put off your back surgery for only so long or that, that knee replacement for only so long. But ultimately, uh, you, you know, you've got to get that replaced, you know, and obviously cancer surgeries. You may have delayed that a little bit, but you're not going to delay that too long. So um, I, I we just very bullish on the long-term prospects just of healthcare in general. People want good health. They want to restore their, you know, their health back, which means oftentimes getting a surgical procedure or an intervention, you know, to get healthy again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The pandemic also kind of, uh, I know on the biopharma side, it obviously forced companies to change how they engage with doctors mm. and in many cases with patients. Can you talk about how the commercial model changed on, on the med tech side uh, from the pandemic and coming out of it post, post COVID? Yeah, sure, Mark. Look, I think there are a lot of durable lessons coming out of COVID for interactions with providers, right? A lot more virtual interactions. There's a lot more virtual training being done. And interestingly, Mark, it's, it's really provided an upside, you know, a lot worldwide, a lot of, you know, education is done via these congresses or these, you know, places where physicians would convene and, and obviously Medtronic were a big provider of, you know, physician training and surgical training. But we've been during the pandemic, you really saw uh, the ability for industry to reach many more physicians kind of all at once in a virtual environment, right? Whether through WebEx, Zoom, you name the platform. Um, and so that training and education, I actually think really continued. The other thing it did was as hospitals, you know, restricted access just in general, but, you know, certainly restricted access. What we saw is a real willingness for clinicians to connect virtually. And it just, you know, it made it really efficient from a time standpoint, too. And I see that continuing. Uh, like I said, I use the term durable. I think that will extend well past, you know, the pandemic. It's just efficient. It's effective. And people have adjusted, to, you know, to that. Sure. I, I kind of heard that, um, you know, whereas biopharma obviously was dependent on the med, on the in-person visit um, from a sales perspective pre-pandemic. Um, and, but then when the pandemic kicked in, Zoom based meetings and the digital marketing picked up and, and very much, um, filled in a lot of or took up a lot of the slack from the lack of in-person contact, uh, when their reps were shut out of doctor's offices in 2020 and 2021. But that you really couldn't do that on the med tech world. You can't just kind of give a virtual presentation over on a product um, like you can with a pill, you know, say, did you find that that was the case that they really, you know, you couldn't really supplant the in-person with the virtual or, or, or you, you found a way? Yeah, I think it's an and, right? Because there's a lot that can be done virtually, but 
look, if you need to do cadaveric work or hands-on training, you're not going to do that in the virtual world. But there's a lot of material information sharing, best practice sharing that can be done virtually, but certainly hands-on training, you know, working with one, with a proctor in a surgery, of course, that, that has to happen, you know, in person. Sure. And certain products are very essential to the therapeutic areas in medical and surgical, I'm sure you would agree. And exactly. um, and the sometimes the, the the representative from the medtech company is considered, you know, part of the of the team, you know, from from the clinician's perspective, you know, because the product is so essential to that procedure. As ORs started to open up again, are you finding that your your reps are welcome again in the operating environment? I heard that the infectious diseases docs were kind of clamping down, you know, on that contact during the pandemic. Is that is that opening up again for you? You're absolutely right. It is opening up. And to your really important point, um, our clinical representatives are a part and parcel of that team in the operating room. And so, no, they're, they're very much welcomed back um, by those operating room teams, by those surgical teams. Um, it's, it's just an important part of how you know, things get done. Sure, sure. Okay, let's, let's move on to uh, the tech side. And um, I'd like to ask you how artificial intelligence-based innovation is impacting med tech? You know, how is it assisting your organization to become more patient-centric? Yeah, Mark, it's a great question. I think AI is really transforming healthcare. And I, I put it in three big buckets. One, I think care gets more personal. Two, I think care gets more predictable. And three, I think care gets more precise. And, you know, if I think about personal, you know, this digital and AI capabilities really accelerate our ability to put people at the center. And if you think about that, because you get the, you get the right solution to the right place, you, you, you know, you expand access to care, you connect information with data. So you quickly identify prevalent healthcare challenges. And, and I'll always speak about this, Mark, in terms of the ecosystem, right? Because what AI does is it helps connect data across silos and really help clinicians provide this customized care. So that's why I think it's more personal. You know, on the, on yeah. the predictable side, of course, you've seen this in other industries, but AI just helps more predictive preventative care. You know, if you think about, I'll use, uh, use one really close to my business and that's, you know, the detection of colon cancer. And, you know, colon cancer is the second deadliest cancer worldwide and, you know, 1.8 million new cases are detected every year. And, you know, we have a technology of GI genius that scans thousands of images during a colonoscopy to alert a physician of a hard to spot, you know, potentially precancerous lesion. It helps us detect that, gives the clinicians the tools to treat that. And so you think about that just helps care become more predictable. And then, of course, precision, you know, digital capabilities has just a really profound potential to supercharge the access, the speed, the accuracy, and the quality of diagnostic and therapeutic decisions. And I, you know, I think, Mark, the example we've always got to be thinking about here is you think about just the U.S., chronic diseases on the rise, you know, 90% of the nation's $3.8 trillion in annual healthcare spend are for people with chronic and mental health conditions. And so, you know, the ability for AI to really innovate and and deliver solutions that are precise to that patient, I mean, that's a game changer. So, you know, this intersection of technology and healthcare, specifically your question around AI, it's going to transform. It's, it's already transforming and, and just the future is going to continue to be transformed. 
Sure, sure. Switching gears for a second to the Outlook. And uh, I know last year, Medtronic acquired Athera. I'm not sure pronouncing that right, whose cardiac mapping and navigation platform is used in ablation, uh, minimally invasive treatment for AFib. In, in interventional cardiology, robotic surgery, some of these other areas, you know, we see uh, rapid innovation really improving the outlook for device companies. What is the medical surgical portfolio's plans for 2023? Any other perhaps uh, M&A deals on the horizon or collaborations? Talk about the year ahead for you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Well, as you correctly noted, Medtronic has always been acquisitive as a company. Uh, we believe we're going to continue to do that. We look for tuck-in acquisitions that fit very well with our strategy. You know, and across the portfolio, we've got an amazing organic R&D pipeline, right? Um, uh, uh, lots of launches this year, lots of launches in the next couple of years. But we always look for where innovation is happening in medtech and whether that would be an interesting partner for us to, to develop it. So, you know, medtech's a big space. We always start with those, you know, therapy areas that we know we can make a difference and whether that is, you know, in general surgery or whether that is in monitoring patients on the ICU floor or whether that is the GI tract or advances in renal care. So, you know, for us, M&A is an important part, but it always starts with the strategy. And then we look at what we're going to do organically and where we might be able to complement that with inorganic activities. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about the year ahead for the sector as a whole, you know, from, from yeah, where you're good. sitting? Yeah, I feel good for a couple of reasons. One, you and I talked about just procedures coming back, you know, uh, elective procedures coming back. Two, I think about just the fundamental drivers of the healthcare system, which is people just want to be healthy, right? And and what MedTech allows you to do is hopefully do that in a way that's quicker and effective, right? And then third, our partnerships with physicians has never been stronger. I mean, we're a company that was built with the initial interaction between an engineer and a physician coming up with the first battery-powered pacemaker. And that legacy of collaboration continues to this day. And so we feel really good about the outlook for, for Medtronic and for MedTech. Great, great. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You bet, Mark. It was a real pleasure. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced that veterans who struggle with suicidal ideation or crisis will now be able to go to the emergency room and receive care free of charge. As part of the policy change, the VA will deliver and pay for that emergency care, both at VA facilities and private facilities. That includes transportation costs as well. The VA will also provide 30 days of free inpatient care and up to 90 days of outpatient care after emergency suicide treatment. It's an attempt to reduce the high number of suicides among veterans. In 2020, more than 6,100 veterans died by suicide, an average of nearly 17 suicide deaths per day. In recent years, the VA has listed suicide prevention as its number one clinical priority. Here's David Rudd, a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Memphis. I think it's a really important first step. A lot of the challenge for the VA uh, has been being able to respond in a meaningful time frame 
uh, to veterans that are in crisis, and particularly veterans that are experiencing a suicidal crisis. I think it's evidence of um, and, and probably an acknowledgement uh, that the that the veteran challenge around uh, mental health uh, issues is pretty significant, uh, and that it really requires partnering. Uh, with private entities to effectively take on the challenge. Still, the move may unveil greater challenges in the mental health care system as a whole. Given the significant demand for mental health care and a mental health care provider shortage during the pandemic. The reality is that it's going to reveal uh, the significant inadequacies in the management of suicidality in the general health care system. Mm. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. This is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. The social media trend this week is a little bit different than the ones that we've talked about in the past couple weeks. For so long, we've seen social media serve as a place where misinformation about vaccines, particularly the COVID-19 shots, has proliferated. However, this week marks something of a sea change in that narrative as users across Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram have joined in to clown on the claims of reactions to the COVID-19 vaccines. What I mean by that is there was one video, a disputed video, that already has a Twitter tag to it, basically saying that there are uh, claims of misinformation associated with it from a woman with shaking feet and shaking arms saying that she had gotten this reaction after being forced to take a COVID-19 vaccine. That prompted people to basically go off on this video. There are a series of videos. You can go on Twitter and see people dancing, gyrating, bouncing all around, all the while sarcastically blaming it on Pfizer or Moderna. This is ranged, again, I talk about countless videos here. This is ranged from the likes of Mr. Met to Michael Scott from The Office, saw one of Elvis as well. So it really runs the gamut here. All this is to say that while anti-vaxxers have tried to make the COVID-19 shots the latest boogeyman of public health by disingenuously claiming injury or feigning symptoms in the hopes of getting others to avoid vaccination, the internet seems all too eager to throw it right back in their face. And I think it's a really interesting trend that's been at play this week. Will it last into next week? I don't know. The internet is very quick and fads go by the wayside, but that kind of seems to be uh, where the pulse is right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you left off there, I wonder how the anti-vax movement will respond. Uh, we'll see in the, in the coming uh, coming days. Coming they usually week. have a good sense of humor about things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they're usually pretty pretty quick uh, to respond. But I like this overall. You know, it's, it's citizen science in action on social, and to the extent that this kind of pushback continues to bubble up organically on the platform, um, it's probably a good thing, right? Yeah, it, it really kind of shows the power of memes in a weird way. I think that even if this had happened maybe a decade ago, I don't know that the internet would have been at that point yet. But we've seen, you know, not only just random users uh, going out there and basically saying this is baloney or I don't believe this. We've also seen some brands engage in that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think this is a good example of using humor to counter health misinformation, which we know has been a huge problem in the in the last few years. And we also know that people, especially younger audiences on social media platforms, respond really well to humor. Um, is this you know something that brands could learn from or find useful in battling health misinformation? It's it's a really interesting way to kind of think about it. I don't think that we've even in MM and M really covered memes as much as we probably should have, but you know, there is that potential for it. I know that one of the brands that really stuck out to me in terms of their, you know, kind of take on this was Duolingo, which again is an organization that has nothing to do with healthcare. They usually spend their days promoting 
you know, their language learning skills or harassing Dua Lipa, the star on their platform. But even they took to twerking and blaming <laughs> Pfizer and just one of those weird kind of crossover incidents. But it's it's captured the Internet. I mean, thousands of likes and retweets and those have real brand impressions. So I don't know what it what it all means. Maybe it is kind of a pivot in terms of how they go about approaching their message. We certainly know that enough brands go out there with kind of humorous campaigns about different conditions that they are appealing to with their medications or treatments. So maybe this is the next step in that. Yeah, it's interesting to, to ponder uh, at what point brands couldn't get involved from the pharma space. On the one hand, I think they're terrified and rightfully so of, of platforms like TikTok, um, you know, from an adverse event perspective. But on, on the other hand, as soon as the user generated, you know, content crosses over into, you know, side effects and, you know, the, the clinical effects of their products, they, they might feel that they have a responsibility to respond, you know, like with what happened, you know, with, with the Sanofi sleep product, you know, several years ago, where they kind of used humor to counter something that was a misnomer about their own product. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on this one. For sure. I'm, I'm happy to be on the meme beat if that's what you have me here for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's a very um, happening beat. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.